and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington, and here are some of the top stories making news across South Sudan, Sudan, and the rest of the region this Thursday, February 29, 2024. Residents of Apayam in Juba County say armed land grabbers forced them off their land. The soldiers removed their uniforms. After removing the uniforms, they entered into land grabbing with sticks and spears. Another one came last Saturday with a car, stopped and opened gunfire. And South Sudanese women in Kenya are thriving as small business owners. I've been here since 2015. I was just sitting at home doing nothing. I decided to open a shop in Nairobi here. And then I had also a salon and some beauty things. That thing is helping me a lot. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. Locals in Jebel Ladu Payam of Juba County say they were displaced by armed land grabbers. They say those who forced them off the land are threatening their lives and they're urging the national government to intervene. Disputes over land among communities in central Equatoria state have resulted in deadly conflicts between the communities themselves and squatters from Jungalay state. The commissioner of Juba County blames organized forces for facilitating land grabs. Dennis Langani has the story for VOA from Juba. Communities in Molobur Boma of Ladupayam in Juba County say Amdiland grabbers have forced them to live and are causing tension in the area. Benjamin Soka, a chief of Molobur Boma, says he is worried about security in the area after Amdiland grabbers invaded their village. He says soldiers carried out a disarmament exercise last year and then grabbed plots at Jebel Ladupayam. The soldiers removed their uniforms. After removing the uniforms, they entered into land grabbing with sticks and spears. Another one came last Saturday with a car, stopped and opened gunfire until the locals dispersed to the bush. Even yesterday at night, the same thing happened as we speak. We have reported several cases. I don't know what Jebel Lado has done to this country or the government. Justin Laduani, an executive executive chief of Ladukari village says a group of land grabbers came at night and removed the fence erected by his community to deter land grabbers from encroaching into community lands in his area. We are telling the media and the government what happened so that the government knows what happened this side. This is our fence from here to the end and it was thrown down at night by the land grabbers. Now the commissioner came and all this spoke with the officers and left without talking to us as chiefs. Now, if these land grabbers come back, what will happen to us? It is not a good, so we shouldn't wait for the people to be killed. Then we say people have died. Juba County Commissioner Charles Joseph Wani visited Molobur village where he accused some police officers and army officials of working together to grab land in different parts of Juba County. There is some individuals who collaborate actually with the criminal land grabbers and they emerge in this area. They begin to destroy the tents of the community. And also, they went to the village, burned some houses. The villagers were chased out in the name of land grabbing. And this thing is happening. The people are coming out within our premises of the government. I want to say this is well-coordinated and collaborated activities, which is always occurring. And there is individual generals who are involved in this Activities. Major General Lu Rai Kong, the spokesperson of the South Sudan People's Defense Force, says 
says the army has arrested soldiers who grabbed land in Gondokoro village. Last year, the chief of defense forces issued directives and they strongly warn us uh, any elements from Elsa that are involved in uh, land grabbing together with elements within immunity to stop such activities. They should be reporting to the nearest SPDF uh, outpost or to the nearest police station okay. because we are not encouraging land grabbing. Juba County Commissioner Wani says soldiers involved in land grabbing should face the law. I want to see that all criminals arrested must be investigated and taken to the prison. There are many criminals who was taken to prison after two weeks was released. I have the evidence of that. So as we are building the nation and the institutions, we need all the people and all the stakeholders to come and finish this issue of land grabbing as soon as possible because we are looking forward for the general election and this general election needs the citizens of South Sudan to be in freedom. Brigadier General Carlos Duck, Deputy Spokesperson for the South Sudan Police Service, says the Commission of Juba County should provide the evidence of the alleged land grabs. In the morning, I give parade, I debrief them of the discipline, the code of conduct generally. But if there is a mild practice involving corruption or involving violation of the law, then it has to be put forward according to the evidence so that the person who have done that can be accounted for. I'm not objecting that there is no mild practice. We have a unit which is called professional standard. If you totally fail, then you raise it. In August 2021, President Salva Kiir formed the 12-member committee to address the issues of rampant land grab cases in Juba. The committee has yet to publish its findings. For VOA News, I'm Dennis Logonye reporting from Juba. Upper Nile state officials say there are not as many child marriages now as in previous years, but decry the practice of child labor. Others say that cases of child marriage in the state remains high. Many factors encourage early marriages in South Sudan, including poverty, the negative impacts of conflict, as well as peer pressure. Mamer Abraham Kwat reports for VOA from Malakal. Malakal is one of the many towns in South Sudan with a high number of child marriages. The studies show that some parents in South Sudan see girls as sources of wealth. Dud Poishluak, Apanail State Ministry of Gender's Child Protection Director, says his office is carrying out assessment in Malakal markets to identify young mothers who are used as child labor. Luak says young mothers work for their livelihoods in Malakal markets after their parents chased them out of the house when they got pregnant while in school. He says he found a large number of teenage girls working below the age of 18. I found 33, 14 from POC and 19 from Malakalton to Las Bulokat. I found all those reports based on child labor. Again, for those 33 children, four of them, they were younger mother, which is very difficult for them. It is whereby I even went through briefly interviewing them. They even told me that. But we are now doing in the market it is uh, we are just running for our sustainability. When we were being pregnant our mother and father told us that we just leave our homes and that is why now we are coming to market in order to, to work for our survival. Luak says child labor violates the laws of the Republic of South Sudan. He says the state government and its partners are working to discourage child marriages to address rampant child labor. Most of the children now, they are working in the, in the market, which is uh, not in the law of South Sudan. It seems like there will be a, a problem about the, the child marriage. 
starting from the 2013, when the South Sudan has been in war, uh, people have been divided into different locations. Currently, the government of Afanali State is unable to reach the far distant location from the Afanali State. Uh, in Afanali State right now, uh, the child marriage is already reducing a bit because there is intervention from the humanitarian partner working closely with the government of Afanali State to advocate and making awareness for the for the issue of child marriage. 20-year-old Gisma Moinluak, a primary seven pupil at Chap Primary School in Malakal Town, dropped out of school in 2021. She stayed out of school for three years, taking care of her child, but was determined to continue with her classes despite numerous challenges. She says a literate mother can change lives in South Sudan. Marriage is nothing. It is better to pursue education first. Getting married before finishing school will leave you behind. If you get married after finishing some levels of education, it is better. I urge girls to finish their studies before getting married so that they can be able to read doctor's prescriptions on the medicines given to their children. I shall continue with my studies until I get secondary school certificate, after which I shall now go to my husband. Michael Lemonjok, a teacher and a father living in Malakal, says child marriage was not part of their culture. He says the high number of cases of early marriage are due to economic problems and the security crisis in South Sudan. Because uh, this early child marriage is not in our culture. Although you like the, the girls, the young girls, you give uh, two cows to do the family of the girls in order that when she reached the age of 19, 20, or 21, 22, then you can start the process of marriage. Uh, this was a long time ago before this uh, crisis and uh, emergency in our country. Uh, but now the, the issue of child marriage, it comes as a consequence of the loss of culture. When Jock says girls who become pregnant should be allowed to return to school. It should not be something that is merely talk and then it is not implemented there concretely. I'm one of the parents, I have a young girl. If uh, some boy comes from another family and impregnates your daughter, let it not be developed as a marriage. You can just solve the issue of pregnancy and then let her go back to school again. And maybe the boy, their family will send him to school again. According to UNICEF's 2016 report, an estimated 52% of women aged 20 to 24 were married before the age of 18 and 7% before the age of 15 in South Sudan. The report estimated that 59% of women in South Sudan between ages of 15 and 19 years were married before completing their schools, while 21% of women and girls were married while in school. For VOA News, I am Amer Abramquad in Malakal. South Sudanese women living in Nairobi say they are taking the lead on building their own small businesses to earn a living. The women say through their creativity, perseverance and dedication, they are breaking barriers and setting inspiring examples for others. William Sunday Mabor has this report from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Mary Ayan Mayom is a South Sudanese woman who is living in Nairobi for nine years. For several years, she did not have a job. But she began sewing business and life got better. Ayan says her business started to grow after she decided to export beads to South Sudanese living in Australia who supported her. 
I've been here since 2015. I was just sitting at home doing nothing. I decided to open a shop in Nairobi here. And then I add also a salon and some beauty things. That thing is helping me a lot because sometimes, like, when we get, like, we don't have some money for some small, small things, especially for myself. It was hard to get something like lotion for myself. But now... This thing is helping me. Even now it is growing well and I can see it is supporting me. Marin Chagai is another South Sudanese woman who sells beads and clothes online. Chagai says she now pays her house rent and school fees using income from her business. I don't have another support from the business I'm doing and the small hustling I'm always doing too. The business is the one supporting me to manage to pay the school fees for my children. Basic things like clothes, foods, and the housing. And I do cover up for school fees, medication of them, and their clothing. Prisky, adult men, sell clothes, shoes, and handbags in Nairobi. She says the little she gets from her business helps her to survive with her children. I just made up my mind to do my little business, and the business I'm doing now, I just phone one of my friends, she's a Kenyan, she has a saloon, so I'm also there with her, doing that business with her. We share the rent, and we also pay the license together, because I have my things there. I also send some clothes, and uh, choose the handbags to South Sudan, and that's where I get my income also, in order to help my husband with some small stuff at home. Man says other South Sudanese women living in Kenya should open businesses. She says her little business has helped with the challenges in her life. I'm facing some challenges. Actually, the saloon, I'm there with that woman. It happened that my things don't just move, but her things are the one moving faster. And I'm also a mother. I don't have anyone to live with my kids. So my time there at shop is very limited. They don't buy my things. They are not moving well, and I'm paying rent. The life we are living in now does not need only one salary. You just wait from your husband to give you the money. You just spend it, and it will just finish. You need to be doing something small, even if you don't have much. Just try to make something out of something from those small ones. Try by all means. If any things are hard, you try, because you can never have it when you are not trying it. So Sudanese Rebecca Gilijob Kang sell gas in Nairobi and also has a machine to grind groundness another income. I sell granite paste, combo, and also have a machine for grinding cooked granites, which I sell in my shop. This business earns me money to pay for food, school fees for my children, and children of my brother, all of them 12 children. I feed them, buy them clothes, and pay school fees. If I had not created this business, I would not be in the position to manage all these children. My brother helps me with some money, which is hard to get in South Sudan, but managing it because of my business. Some of the South Sudanese women say doing business in a foreign land is not easy, and their profits are low because of high taxes for a health clearance card, a business license, and rent. For VOA News, I am William Sande Mabur in Nairobi, Kenya. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus on The Voice of America. Coming up on South Sudan in Focus, what is the U.S. doing to counter Russia's expanding influence in West Africa? Find out when we come back.
Hello, listener of South Sudan in Focus. We have an exciting new segment dubbed Words of Wisdom. We want to hear your thoughtful proverbs that echo through your community. This is another chance for you to share wisdom from your roots. All you need to do is record a proverb in a language of your choice, tell us its English translation, and what it means. Keep it brief, authentic, and represent your community. Your recorded proverb shall be sampled on South Sudan in Focus every Wednesday. Send your recording via our WhatsApp number, plus one, two zero two, six three zero, eight zero one one. That is plus one, two zero two, six three zero, eight zero one one. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on The Voice of America. U.S. officials are engaged in a flurry of diplomatic efforts publicly and privately in West Africa, looking for ways to partner with military governments in an area where violence by Islamist extremists is on the rise and Russian influence is expanding. Officials have struggled to clarify what that partnership would look like and are restricted by U.S. laws on military support following military takeovers in Niger, Mali and Burkina Faso. J. Peter Pham, former U.S. Special Envoy for the Sahel region, tells me that the U.S. must do more than just push for transparent and free elections. I think we're we're beginning to recognize what people like me have been arguing for some time, which is that, look, one doesn't have to condone a coup, and one doesn't, to recognize that they often, in some cases, do respond to an underlying problem that existed. Just because it was a guy in uniform who took over and did it extra constitution doesn't mean that what came before was a Jeffersonian democracy or even a democracy first. Secondly, the fact is we have to acknowledge the reality. The reality is that tens of thousands, in the case of Mali, even millions of people have gone to the streets to demonstrate in support of the military takeovers. Now, again, without justifying them, without condoning them, one has to recognize that these guys are popular. In fact, in many cases, more popular than the regimes that came before them. And so we have to deal with the reality of the situation, look at our national interests, and look at what people in the region are looking for. You know, there's a famous saying that says, you know, foolish consistency, you know, shows, you know, basically is a hobgoblin of small minds. And I think that this is where we have to look at each case individually. And sanctions, tough talk, that hasn't worked. U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Mali Fee recently visited Niamey, Niger's capital. She said we made the choices as stark and clear as we could. A lot of countries, including the U.S., are worried that these countries are tilting in the Sahel, tilting toward Russia. What do you know about that? Well, I would say, you know, in many cases, and I use this metaphor speaking to another journalist, you can't be a doctor that diagnoses an ailment and refuses to write a script for the medication needed. If you won't do, write the script, don't be surprised if the patient goes on to someone else who gives them something, even if it's not a good remedy. And I think that's what we have to look at. What are these regimes looking for? They're looking for security assistance. They're looking to buy weapons. You know, we're not going to provide them. I'm not saying we should in every single case. We have to look at each case individually. Then don't be surprised that when Russia offers them what is essentially a regime survival kit, if you will, of military assistance, security, advice, in some cases even mercenaries, that they will go for that. You, but, you point out the, the analogy. Prescription, as far as the U.S. is concerned, it won't be giving them weapons. So what is the alternative? 
I, I think yeah, that we should not rule anything out. In some cases, it is. When you're in the case of, you know, Burkina Faso, where half the country is overrun by jihadist terrorists, you know, I'm not sure, you know, it's very easy to sit from a distance and say your first priority should be organizing a timetable for elections. How do you hold elections when half the country is overrun? Anyway, so I think we have to be a little more pragmatic and we shouldn't be scoring self goals. I'm not condoning coups, but I'm saying we have to be, we have to look at the bigger picture and not always default to certain uh, cliches. That is Peter Pham, former U.S. ambassador and special envoy for Africa's Sahel region and a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council. He was speaking with me here in Washington. West African nations are pushing for the construction of a major highway network connecting five countries from the Ivory Coast to Nigeria. The African Development Bank says the project will be an economic engine for all the countries involved. Sananu Tord reports from Accra, Ghana. Ni Ananofori is a traditional leader and the custodian of land in the Ghana East traditional area, just outside Ghana's capital of Accra. His community has been marked for the construction of portions of the 1,000 28-kilometer-long Abidjan-Lagos corridor. A three-kilometer highway tunnel will run through his community. Having a tunnel in your area, which is one of the first in West Africa, is going to uh, increase the value of the, our area, the lands, and so on. And many people would like to invest in that area. The corridor is a transnational highway project aimed at connecting five West African countries, Ivory Coast through Ghana, Togo, Benin, and Nigeria. The ultimate objective, according to the Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, is to provide jobs and create a fast-moving economic corridor between the nations. The project was initiated in 2013 by all five countries and has gone through a series of studies and evaluations to develop a six-lane highway design. It will connect the most economically viable cities, ports and airports in the sub-region. Ifwa Ifwa is with Ghana's Ministry of Roads and Highway. So the whole project objective is looking at how we integrate the economies of the West African community. We are looking at cross-border and improving cross-border trade. And then we're looking at encouraging, sorry, we're looking at improving um, economic and social activities between the communities in the corridor. There are still issues to be worked out, including ways to run one highway across multiple countries with diverse language systems and legal frameworks. The Economic Community of West African States say construction on the project could begin as early as 2025. Chris Apia is the Acting Director of Transport at ECOWAS. The whole of 2024, we'll be on the market looking for money. If it so happens that uh, uh, a section attracts financing immediately, nothing stops us from starting. The plan envisions future connections to other countries creating a continent-wide network of nine highways spanning from Cairo to Cape Town and from Dakar to Djibouti. The next step, according to ECOWAS, is to connect Dakar to the Abidjan-Lagos corridor. Sana Lutod, VOA News, Accra, Ghana. 
Hundreds of government troops are entering homes in Chad's capital in Jemena in search of weapons they say suspected rebels and opposition party leaders have hidden. There are also unconfirmed reports that opposition politician Yaya Dilo died in a clash with security forces on Wednesday. Mogi Edwin Kinzeka has more from Yaoundi, Cameroon. Chad State TV reports that transitional president Mohamed Idris Deby ordered the military to search for weapons allegedly held by members of the opposition. Chad's military on Thursday said troops are searching for armed men whom they said carried out attacks on government institutions and state officials on Wednesday. In addition, international news media on Thursday are quoting prosecutor Umar Mohammed Kedeleyi as saying that Yaya Dilu, president of the opposition socialist party without borders, was killed in a gun battle with security forces on Wednesday. A government statement says Dilo led an attack overnight Tuesday on the facilities of the National Agency for State Security in the capital, Jamena, and that several party members were arrested. VOA cannot independently verify reports that Dilo was killed or the details about the alleged clashes. On Thursday, the military said several hundred civilians and armed men had been arrested, but it did not provide any details. Lawmaker Ali Kolutu Chaimi spoke on state TV about the attacks. Nous, président de groupe parlementaire, he says Chad's parliament strongly condemns attacks on state institutions and officials, which he says were funded and carried out by people with a hidden agenda and obscure intentions. Chami says Debbie should be allowed to conclude his mandate as transitional president and hand power peacefully to constitutional order. Chinese said Parliament wants government forces to arrest those who organized the attacks, assure the safety of civilians and government officials, and protect Chad's territorial integrity. Opposition parties and civil society groups say the clashes provoked panic. Many people fled in Jamena. Takilan Dolesem is president of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Chad. He spoke to VOA by telephone from Jamena. He says after Wednesday's attacks, several hundred frightened civilians also fled to neighboring Cameroon following rumors that there was an attempt by disgruntled government troops to overthrow Chad's transitional president, Deby. He says many people suspect that mutineers received orders from disgruntled opposition leaders. Neither Chad officials nor the opposition politicians have said if the gun battles reported Tuesday and Wednesday were a coup attempt. On Thursday, Chad's Minister of Public Security and Immigration, Mohamed Chafadin Margui, said he visited Cameroon communities near the border to encourage those who had fled to return. 
He said crisis meetings were held with Cameroon officials to deal with any people who may have taken part in Wednesday's attacks and are hiding in Cameroon. Cameroon confirms that militaries of the two countries held meetings on Wednesday and Thursday. Davy became leader of the Transitional Military Council in April 2021 after his father, Idris Deby Itno, died. The elder Deby had led the country for three decades. The younger Deby promised to head an 18-month transitional council, but in October of 2022, he dissolved the council and declared himself interim president. The government has said a presidential election will be held on May 6 to end the transitional period. The former ruling party, the Patriotic Salvation Movement, says Debbie will be its candidate. The opposition, however, says there is growing public unhappiness over the idea that Debbie would be a candidate. Moki Edwin Kinzaka, VOA News, Yawundi, Cameroon. And that wraps it up for this Thursday. Be sure to check out voaafrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. And if you somehow missed this broadcast, head on over to www.voaafrica.com backslash South Sudan. We now leave you with the song Premier Gao by Magic System. I'm your host, Carol Van Damen Washington. On behalf of our engineer, Rob McLean, and producer Kwame Afori, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you back here tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from The Voice of America. (laughs) 